Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har længe haft lyst til at lave en samtale med en, der kunne give os forhistorien om Vladimir Putin. Der kunne fortælle om det kaos i 1990'erne, der har skabt en vis legitimitet for den orden, Vladimir Putin trods alt skabte i begyndelsen af det 21. århundrede. En, der kendte historien om de ydmygelser, som russerne mener, de blev udsat for i 1990'erne, og som også kunne fortælle om, hvorfor der er et element af national genrejsning i den måde, Vladimir Putin er præsident i Rusland på. En, der kunne give os en stor historie om overgangen fra Sovjetunionen til Rusland, og en, der kunne give os de store perspektiver på Vladimir Putins udvikling som præsident frem til det fuldstændig katastrofale scenario, vi står i i dag. Og en, som også kvalificeret kunne spekulere over, hvordan man stopper Putin, og hvordan afslutningen på Putins regime ser ud. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark. And especially, it's not good evening, it's hello to you, professor Stephen Kotkin. Rune, it's great to be with you. Og se det op for mig, at jeg for nogle år siden læste en bog af den amerikanske historiker Stephen Kotkin, som hedder Armageddon Averted. Det er en bog, der handler om netop The Soviet Collapse, som også er bogens undertitel, og som handler om, hvordan det kan være, at Sovjetunionens kollaps ikke blev blodet og militært, men i stedet blev fundamentet for en ny form for autokrati. I read your book Armageddon Averted some years ago, and it stuck with me. For me, it was one of the best explanations for how the Soviet Union came apart. And I've been thinking a lot about that book over the last half year, because we actually, to be honest, we don't understand a lot about Russia here. And all of a sudden we realize we must have a better understanding of it. So for that reason, it's such a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. Stephen Kotkin har skrevet meget om Rusland og Sovjetunionen. Han er i gang med et kæmpe værk, som er en trebindsbiografi om Stalin. Han har skrevet adskilligt andet om, om Rusland og om det, som amerikanerne kalder for international affairs. Han er lige nu professor i historie ved Stanford University i Kalifornien. Og så er han en kvalificeret og engageret iagtager af internationale anlægner i dag. Og meget, meget kritisk over for Ruslands krig i Ukraine og ønsker, at Vesten sender endnu flere våben til Ukraine for at forsvare Ukraine og for at give Putin det nederlag, som han efter Kotkins mening har brug for. God fornøjelse. You've written extensively on, on Russia, and you're in the process of writing a great, great Stalin biography. Uh, but you've written several pieces uh, of it with great enthusiasm and great insight. How did you originally come to take an interest in Russia? Uh, you know, Runa, I was young and I didn't know much about the world and I didn't understand my choices. I had some very good teachers. They're always inspiring and especially on an impressionable mind. Uh, but it was really Michel Foucault, the famous uh, fr- French uh, philosopher, who uh, at lunch one day said to me, maybe it would be interesting if someone applied my theories to the case of Stalinism. And I was quite young, 23 years old, and I had started learning Russian, started learning the Russian language. I was in the PhD program at the University of California at Berkeley, uh, where uh, Michel Foucault was visiting. And I ended up doing that project, which was published as Magnetic Mountain, That uh, was my PhD thesis first, and then my a published book, and and the rest, as they say, uh, Rune is history. 
<laughs> that's that's very interesting because there's been a lot of Foucault has been extremely influential here, and now there's kind of a backlash against it, and he gets blamed for all sorts of things. So I can't help asking you. I'm a little curious. How did you feel that his theories of power? How did they hold up against the analysis of, of uh, Stalinism and the Soviet Union? Well, I suppose Rona, I could also be blamed. Uh, that is to say, Foucault could also be blamed for me. <laughs> uh, I didn't accept his analysis of West, Western civilization, or, of Europe, or France, in the sense that I thought the techniques, the methods were really interesting, but his analysis of the way the West worked as a kind of carceral archipelago of how various forms of knowledge became power and became entrapping. Uh, I thought that that was potentially misapplied to the free countries that we lived in, uh, including uh, in Western Europe. But I thought it was perfect for the Soviet Union because what it opened up for authoritarian, really totalitarian regimes was the connection between the regime's repressive apparatus but more importantly, the people's own imposition of unfreedom on themselves on, and on each other. So in the micropolitics of everyday life and people's identities and the categories of thought, the regime was able to extend the state power that came from the repressive apparatus. And so it was individual agency that destroyed individual agency. It was individual people that made totalitarianism happen. And I got that from both Michel Foucault and another uh, French uh, theorist, Michel Dussertot. And so they were the two main influences on me when I was 23, 24 years old. And whether I did it well or not, uh, certainly I would not have done it without them. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's very interesting. So you but so you stick to to studying Russia and the Soviet Union. You've studied other things as well, and it's also a professor of international affairs. And I think here in Scandinavia, we had the suspicion, or we expected Russia after the fall of communism to become more like us. It was just a default attitude. I think that they got the chance to be liberal, and they would come to be they would come to be like us. And um, like Svetlana Alexievich, she wrote in, in, in one of her, her great books that they desired sneakers and Sony Walkmans and hamburgers so much. And we thought that was the basic desire driving society. Uh, did you at the time also in, in the 90s think that they would be liberalizing not to become a Western society, but to come to resemble our societies? Well, yes, Rune, you'll remember that when I wrote Armageddon Averted, I said 1970 to 2000 was the Soviet collapse. So the Soviet collapse didn't end in 1991. It was still in the middle. And Russia, as the major successor state to the Soviet Union, inherited the collapse. It inherited all the attributes of the Soviet Union, including the material culture and where the railways were located, uh, but it also inherited this terrible collapse. And so part of the state collapse that they experienced involved massive theft of property, insider theft of property. We think of 
privatization as something which is decreed by the government or enacted by the government, when in fact it was enacted by the local officials, especially in factories, the factory directors, who directly controlled the property. So the process of state collapse, of Soviet collapse, of stealing everything in sight, this was the Russia of the 1990s. So the idea that this was some type of transition to democracy only made sense if you understood democracy outside the rule of law, outside property rights, outside physical security, and all the other great things that people in Scandinavia enjoy and take for granted. So there were definitely new freedoms and those freedoms were very important, but the freedoms were not properly anchored in institutions. And so the chaos, the anarchy, the criminality, and, and indeed the destruction of value and the theft of the property, these were all the main processes underway, which would make it very difficult to stabilize in some type of rule of law equilibrium. But I then pondered this question over decades to try to get a deeper understanding, which I attempted to root in more long-term history of Russian power. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, I think, almost ritual self-criticism in the West that we let Russia down in the 90s. And, and there are people saying, well, we should have made a martial plan for Russia. And, and you say in your book that those who blame the West for not uh, making a martial plan for Russia, equivalent to the one that the U.S. made for Western Europe after the Second World War, that they're misguided on several counts. How is that? Well, the Germans gave a fortune in money to Mikhail Gorbachev uh, as payment for the peaceful unification of Germany inside the Western Alliance. Gorbachev admitted to Helmut Kohl that all of that money disappeared. So even before the Soviet collapse, the money that the West was transferring to the Soviet Union was vanishing in the insider theft that I was just talking about. After 1991, that process continued. A great deal of money was in fact transferred to Russia. IMF money is the best known, uh, but also quite a bit of other resources transferred to Russia and they were stolen. So I ask people who are in favor retrospectively or were even in favor prospectively of such a Marshall Plan, To whom would the money be given and what would happen to it? It would be given to the Russian government and it would end up in Switzerland or Liechtenstein or other places in secret bank accounts. Do you know that altogether from the German unification through the, the beginning of the Putin regime, something on the order of $50 billion dollars in Western money was actually transferred to Russia? and that most of that money is unaccounted for. So there was not a Marshall Plan. There were various different transfers that vanished. And had we given more money under something called the Marshall Plan, well, we would have lost that money too. You see, Runa, you need a functioning state. You need a civil service. You need control over your apparatchiks in order to enact a Marshall Plan. 
And all of that was missing in 1990s Russia. And so the money we did give disappeared and that was Western taxpayer money. The legitimacy that Putin at least had in the beginning of the 21st century, how much was that based on the experience of the collapse in the 90s? When we tend to think of the fall of communism as the decisive event, then we read your book and we understand that actually the, the crucial turning point is more the transition from Yeltsin to Putin and then Putin evolves. And how important is that for understanding the legitimacy and the support that Putin had, at least initially, that he managed to create some kind of, of order after the chaotic 90s? Yes, he did. And he deserves credit for that. And the Russian people gave him credit for that. He stabilized the situation. He halted the collapse. You might even say he arrested the collapse and began to rebuild, began to rebuild the Russian state, began to rebuild the Russian economy. It wasn't oil prices at the beginning. Oil prices uh, during uh, President Putin's first term averaged only about 30 something dollars a barrel, slightly higher during his second term. And that's when economic growth was about 7% per year. It started at the very end of Yeltsin's reign and continued through Putin. Uh, Putin did uh, allowed private property in agricultural regions. He fixed the tax system. There are a number of very important economically liberalizing and politically stabilizing policies of the early Putin presidency. The problem, Runa, were the methods. And so one can use, let's say, extrajudicial methods, non-democratic methods, non-rule of law methods to stabilize a situation. But those methods then become a source of problem as you move forward. And so when you're saying that Mikhail Khodorkovsky stole the property, the Yukos oil company that he formed was on the basis of stolen property. If you steal it back from him, you're correcting the original wrong, but you're committing a second wrong. And that theft of Harakovsky's Yukos company was a signal and gave legitimacy to other Russian officials at lower levels to steal property from legitimate businesses not just from people who had stolen their property originally. So the methods of Putin's stabilization eventually undid the stabilization. In other words, the credit that he was given for the stabilization by the Russian people, less so by commentators in outside of Russia, but by the Russian people, uh, did not have long-term effects of the stabilization that the Russian people were hoping for because of the KGB style methods that Putin employed. Moreover, it's destabilizing to re-steal property from other people. So over time, the vaunted stabilization became unfortunately another form of destabilization. So people who worked hard, built a business, had their businesses stolen at all levels not just by officials at the top of the regime, but down below in the regions. At the top of the regime, there was also an expropriation. 
Putin's closest friends began to steal the property from other oligarchs until you had a narrowing of the political and economic regime to those who were only close to Putin, creating a lot of enemies. And once again, not a long-term solution to the problems inherited from the Soviet collapse. So on the whole, you have to say that Putin is a, a transitional figure. He's a transitional figure of failure, however. He brought the so initial Soviet collapse that had continued after 91 to a halt. He introduced some really important political and economic reforms, and then he cut out the rug from under himself. And, and of course, once again, this is related to the larger geopolitical story that I tried to tell in explaining both the Soviet collapse and the continuity in autocratic regimes in Russia, the larger picture. When, when Putin first came to power, he wasn't a very experienced uh, politician. In fact, he wasn't, he, almost he wasn't a politician, but then he, he evolved as a politician and, and learned to understand politics as a kind of craft. And I think he, no matter the failures, you have some capacity if you manage to stay in power for 20 years. So how would you describe the trajectory? How did he develop as a politician? Yes, he had no retail politics, no public political skills at all when he inherited this power. Let's remember that Boris Yeltsin chose Putin <laughs> to be president and gave him the administrative powers of the state in order to run for election. And, and they use the administrative powers of the state to crush others who aspired to run for the presidency. So Putin is uh, an artifact of the Yeltsin era in all ways, including a direct appointment of Boris Yeltsin. At first, it was hard for him. He had a lot of people left over from the Yeltsin regime, the Yeltsin family and the bunch of crooks the thieves associated with the Yeltsin family, the control of Gazprom, the big, very important source of colossal revenues by a, a, a band of criminals uh, under Rem Vyakharev, the television stations also stolen by various oligarchs like Vladimir Gusinsky and Boris Birozovsky, the governors in the regions ruling like little czars, ignoring federal law in the regions. So it was a tall mountain to climb. And he had to rebuild the state against those powerful interests and at the same time win over the population. He did so, he learned how to be a politician, a retail politician over time, in part because he had an intuition for the great masses of people who were losers in the collapse of the Soviet Union. They didn't acquire any property. Their life savings were wiped out. Their professional status was diminished. He was one of those people. He was one of the losers of the 1991 collapse of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, of the loss of that big empire. And so he had a rapport with the vast majority of people who were in the same condition, the same boat as he was. And so that helped him not only in this process of regaining central control, 
rebuilding the state, but also gaining some type of popular legitimacy and uh, rooting his rule in the masses. And so over time, this success became more and more evident. His success in becoming a retail politician with a personal touch. However, what also became evident, Rune, was how Putin diminished the other sources of power in the country in the name of rebuilding the state. And how the rebuilding of the state devolved into a personalist regime, a Putin regime, not a Russia regime. And how Putin conflated state interests of Russia, Russian national interests with his personal interests and how arrogant he became by having authoritarian power, absolute power for many decades at the top of the system. He was always cocky, very arrogant, but he became even more so. And he began to make decisions, not measuring the negative consequences and the risks in these decisions because he had sole power, he had absolute power, and those around him were yes men telling him what he wanted to hear. And so his regime deteriorated in terms of its behavior. So there's a, a rise in which he's acquiring skills and then there's a deterioration in which the arrogance undermines some of the dexterity that we saw him building up. So that's where we are today. One of the, I think for me at least, very difficult question is, how should we judge the responsibility of the Russians, of, of, of Putin? You know, you have some people in Europe now saying, well, they made a pact with Putin. They said he gives us economic prosperity and we let him become more and more authoritarian. They let democracy slip away. So they have a responsibility for what the regime turned into and ultimately for the war that he inflicted upon now Ukraine. Then other people are saying, well, this is a regime that didn't allow opposition. Just see what happened to, for instance, Boris Nemtsov or several journalists. This is a regime where it was not possible to stand up against it. And of course, this question of moral responsibility is very important when you look at how you legitimize the sanctions, et cetera, et cetera. How do you see this question of responsibility of the Russians of the reign of Putin? These are difficult questions, Runa, you're right. So the, there's no deal, there's no social contract between the people and an authoritarian regime. The people don't give up their freedom in exchange for political stability and economic growth. That's not a bargain that's made because if the regime fails to supply political stability and economic growth, if the economic growth stops, if the political stability becomes destabilized, the regime doesn't say to the people, we violated our contract. We're now going to leave power voluntarily. We had a contract with you. <laughs> you gave up your freedoms and we were supposed to give you economic growth and political stability, but we failed now. So we're going to honor our bargain with you and we're going to leave power voluntarily. When does that happen? Never. That never happens. So there was no such bargain room. People perceived, ordinary people perceived the high risk of getting involved in politics and the low benefits 
of that involvement. And so most ordinary people, whether they were nationalist, partial nationalist, or opposition, calculated that the costs were too high and their influence, the positive gains that they could see happen were too low. After all, ordinary people have families, they have children, they have elderly parents, they have to pay for their mortgages or their housing in some other fashion. They wanna keep their jobs in order to support their families. And so we cannot ask ordinary people to be Andre Sakharov. Andre Sakharov is an exception and very few people have the kind of courage that he exhibited and the kind of willingness to endure those sacrifices that he endured of internal exile. And so we can't fault the Russians for keeping their heads down under the Putin regime. It's a criminal regime. It's a murderous regime. You alluded to the politicians and the journalists he killed. There are many other people who died in police custody or are rotting away in prison camps who are not famous like Boris Nemtsov, whose names we don't know. So the people kept their heads down or in many cases, they left Russia if they could to start a new life elsewhere. And so faulting them is too easy because how would we behave if we were given those choices? Mm -hmm. We're lucky to live in free countries. We're lucky to be able to enjoy those freedoms and support our families without worrying about whether a statement we make about politics or an action we take in public might risk our entire livelihoods, our freedoms, and our families. We're fortunate, but if we were placed in those circumstances, how would we behave? So I don't judge the Russian people. As far as complicity in the war today, uh, it's not just Putin. He's, he alone chose the war. He alone launched the war. Both Crimea in 2014, when he forcibly annexed legally Ukrainian territory in 2014, the escalations over the years, including the instigation of the separatist movement in the Donbass, Eastern Ukraine, and of course, the full-scale invasion of February 2022. That's all Putin. That's on him. He made those decisions and he made them alone. At the same time, the Russian establishment shares with Putin the view that Russia is mistreated, that Russia has grievances, that the West lies to Russia, that the West is too powerful. The anti-Westernism in Russia, and not only in Russia, is extremely powerful and a unifying factor of the Putin regime, of the establishment more broadly in Russia. Not everyone but many beyond Putin. That doesn't mean that they were in favor of aggression against Ukraine. It means, however, that they share the grievances against the West broadly in Russian culture. Many people in Russia feel that the West mistreated Russia, that the West is too powerful. That doesn't, in my mind, ever justify violating international law and attempting to conquer a free and sovereign nation like Ukraine. 
there is no justification for what Russia is doing. But there is some sentiment that Russia got a raw deal. Now, let's remember, the Soviet Union was what collapsed. And moreover, it was the Russians. Boris Yeltsin was the one who signed the decree dissolving the Soviet Union. It was not George H.W. Bush. It was not the CIA. It was not Brussels. Right? It was not Bonn and now Berlin. It was, in fact, Boris Yeltsin with the leaders of Belarus and Ukraine who did that. But nonetheless, the sense of grievance is palpable and it extends beyond Putin. But we cannot, we cannot fail to remember that the Soviet Union was a founding member of the United Nations whose charter defends the sovereignty of all countries and their territorial integrity. The Helsinki Final Act of 1975, which reaffirmed the principle of defense of sovereignty and territorial integrity. The Paris Charter for a New Europe of 1990, all of which reaffirmed sovereignty, which means the right to join any alliance freely that you might want to join if you're invited to join. Russia was the legal successor state of the Soviet Union, which is why it inherited the UN Security Council permanent seat and veto. Mm. And more than just that, not only did it inherit all of those Soviet agreements, but it signed, Boris Yeltsin in 1997 signed the NATO-Russia Founding Act, which puts no limits on NATO expansion. And so in an international system, recognized by treaty to which Moscow is a party in many different documents, there is no possible justification for Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Runa, if, if, if you told me that the West or Ukraine provoked Russia into this aggression, that Russia had no choice, I would ask you, well, if a man rapes a woman, do we blame the woman because her skirt is too short? Do we blame the woman because she's wearing lipstick? She wanted to join NATO and therefore a criminal rape like this aggression is justified because she provoked the man to do that? No, we would never say that, Runa, nor would we say it in the case of Russia's aggression in Ukraine. So we understand the grievance culture we understand the resentment. We understand the establishment in Russia feels the West cheated them. But we have to say that this is a criminal aggression. I absolutely agree with you. There's no symmetry of guilt or responsibility here for the aggression. Absolutely not. One thing that we that we try to find out here in Europe and Scandinavia at the moment is we've been thinking that the Russian patriotism is strong that they're willing to suffer for Putin and they can bear consequences that we cannot bear here in the West. You know, kind of we inherited their image of us as decadents who can't sacrifice anything for a, for a greater cause. And we've kind of thought they can do that. They will suffer the consequences and they will fight for, for Russia if they need to. And now all of a sudden we see these pictures of the great, 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 great lines at the border, Russians fleeing, and we see how hard it is for him to ask them to fight for him, how hard it is for him to mobilize. How do you see his, uh, his uh, support for the war and his capacity to mobilize his own people for, for this 
unjust aggression against Ukraine? Yes, well, Runa, I think it's pretty clear what the Russians think of the war. You know, there's, there's the war in Russian propaganda, which the Russians support, but that's not the war. That's a lie about the war. Many Russians support the war because they don't know what's actually happening. They don't have the same information that you have, Runa. But also, they don't have a free choice. If they tell somebody that they don't support Putin and don't support the war, there could be consequences. Authoritarian regimes can fail at everything. They can fail to feed their people or clothe their people or provide security for their country. They can survive these regimes only if they succeed at one thing, suppressing alternatives. If they can suppress all possible alternatives, they can be terrible at everything, but the regime can endure. And moreover, people can say that they support the regime because there's no other regime that they're being offered. But now in a war, war is the great revealer. If you have propaganda telling you that people support you in peacetime, then comes the war and they have to fight. And all of a sudden, what does support mean? Or if you have propaganda that you're a genius, a strategist, that you're playing a weak hand brilliantly, and then the war comes and the battlefield tests what type of leader you actually are. And so war has shown the lies. It has shown that the people did not necessarily truthfully answer those surveys when they were asked if they support, because what else can they say, Runa? They don't want to go to prison. They don't want their children to be kicked out of school. They want just to live an ordinary life. Now what we're seeing is Putin's willingness to destroy his own country on behalf of the survival of his regime. He claims that Russia is at stake. And the answer is only because of Putin's behavior. Do you know, Runa, that there are just as many, maybe more Russians of the middle class, educated entrepreneurial Russians who have fled Russia or have been pushed out of Russia than are remaining inside Russia? No. What are the th three largest per capita IT populations in the world, information technology workers. First is California. That's number one. There are more IT workers in California for the total population than anywhere else in the world. What's number two, Rune? Yes. I don't know. Ar Armenia. Armenia. And what's number three? Kyrgyzstan. So Armenia and Kyrgyzstan are number two and three just behind California in per capita information technology, skilled workers, skilled technicians, engineers. How did that happen, Luna? Where did those people come from? They came from Russia. from Russia. Of course, you're right. And so Putin was willing to sacrifice to get rid of, to push out or to allow to flee his most highly educated, most entrepreneurial, dynamic people. 
his entire private sector. And so how is that defending Russia's interests? How is provoking Sweden, Sweden to ask for NATO membership, defending Russian interests? Runa, I never in my life imagined that Sweden would apply for NATO membership, <laughs> right? And how is it that making Ukraine completely pro-Western and willing to die for access to the West, for joining the West. How is that in Russia's interest? Everywhere across the board, Putin is destroying Russian interests in the name of defending them now. And, and whatever you measure, we could do many measurements. Russia was an energy superpower in hydrocarbons. That's finished now, Rune. Russia was supposedly a great military machine. And the Chinese knew that Russia was weak economically and weak socially, but had the illusion that Russia might still be militarily strong. Now, what do those weapons look like now that they've been tested on the battlefield? <laughs> and the Chinese military is based upon the Russian weapons, either purchased from Russia or copied from the ones purchased from Russia. And so Putin has done more to destroy Russian power long term than anyone who's ever lived. And if it wasn't for the Ukrainians dying every day, those people who are anti-Russia would say, let Putin stay in for 20 more years, and then there'll be no Russia left at the end of that. But unfortunately, Ukraine is being destroyed and Ukrainians are being killed. And so Putin is destroying not only his own country, but his neighbor. There is no doubt here in Denmark that there's absolutely unanimous support for Ukraine. And you don't even see any political party here want to weaken the sanctions or anything. So, so there, there's no opposition here. All agree and all follow Ukrainians enthusiastically. So there, And there's also a sense of relief that he just can't march in and grab their land and, and grab their territory. And the momentum shift in this fall is hopeful and inspires some enthusiasm here, but it also inspires a kind of new fear. How dangerous is his weakness? He's shown that he has tremendous tolerance for destruction and that he's willing to gamble with all other people's lives than his own. And we know that he has no way out of power. So in this situation now, where there's reason for optimism on the battlefield, There's also, I think, the real fear that he might go to even nuclear threats and, and using tactical nuclear weapons. How, how do you see this scenario? Yes. Well, the formula has been Ukrainian valor plus Russian atrocities equals European resolve. That's the formula. <laughs> so if the Europeans were hesitant at first, Putin... Uh, the Ukrainians showed bravery and then Putin destroyed hospitals. And then the Europeans got more resolve. Then Ukrainians were even braver on the battlefield. Putin committed even more atrocities and the European resolve kept increasing and increasing. Now, as we know, we see what's happened to the pipeline near Bornholm, which is very troubling. We don't know exactly the cause yet. It's still under investigation. But these are pipelines that don't usually get punctured by accidents. 
they're accident proof in many ways. It takes an act of sabotage to puncture these pipelines. And there are a lot of circumstances that are suspicious, including the Swedes, as you know, measured some explosions on the seafloor close to the pipelines. So hopefully we'll get an answer from Denmark's investigation of the situation in collaboration with the allies. So he has no path to successful escalation. That's my point. Every time he does something new, it only increases the opposition in Europe to Russia, and it only increases the willingness of Ukraine to fight and stay in the battle against him. So everything he tries backfires on him. And if he were to use unconventional weapons, like a tactical nuclear weapon, it would not bring him victory. There's no path to victory for him, but it would bring potentially NATO direct involvement against Russian troops and weapons on Ukrainian territory and in the Black Sea. So we don't want a wider war. Nobody wants that. The Europeans don't want that. Washington doesn't want that. And in fact, it looks like Putin doesn't want that. Let's remember, he hesitated to do this mobilization for six, seven months because he knew the risks that were involved, didn't he? And we see those risks. So yes, it could be that he continues to commit atrocities, to cross red lines, to even use unconventional weapons like a nuclear weapon. But we have to make clear to him to deter him from doing that, what the costs will be, and we're, we are communicating to him. And then we have to be ready to react. People were taken by surprise when there were the explosions on the pipelines. But when he said any means, he didn't mean only nuclear weapons, Runa. He meant such things as sabotage. He could sabotage the pipeline that runs from Norway. So that must be better protected. He could sabotage the undersea cables. We are communicating now, Runa, you and I, with undersea cables. People talk about the cloud. The internet is not in the cloud, Runa. <laughs> That's a metaphor. The internet is in the sea. It's in the ocean. 90% plus, something like 97, maybe 99% of all communication is through undersea cables. A little bit is in satellites, but most of it is undersea cables. And they are mapped. It's publicly known where they are. And he has a submarine fleet that could cut those cables. And we could lose international communication, only relying left to rely on satellites. And moreover, he has capabilities to knock out those satellites. So there's a great deal of damage Russia can still do. Russia remains a powerful country. It has a lot of latent power as well. And we don't want to see this kind of spiraling spoilation where he continues to despoil not just Ukraine, but also European environment and European energy security and maybe communications and many other things I'm not talking about. 
This is why I have been in favor of arming the Ukrainians more vigorously, faster, and with heavier weapons. Ukraine is not yet winning the war. The war is happening on Ukrainian soil. Russia is in occupation of Ukrainian territory. Until Russia is removed from Ukraine, Ukraine has not won this war. Not only are they in occupation of Ukrainian territory, but they are strangling the Ukrainian economy, which is very costly for the Ukrainians and for Western taxpayers. And the winter is going to be very difficult in Ukraine for all these reasons, where they don't have heat and they don't necessarily have the ability to manage through the winter if it's a tough winter. And so we need to act faster. We need to be more resolute. We need to be less afraid of escalation because he's got no path to successful escalation. And we must deter him from foolish escalation. Eventually, Runa, we need some type of diplomacy here. And here we might look to our friends in Finland hmm. who are the most understanding of Russia, of any European country. Nobody has to explain Russia to the Finns. No. They know Russia best. And so maybe we can get with the Ukrainians somehow winning the war on the battlefield with greater Western support. Maybe we can also get some type of process of negotiation, including with Russians besides Putin, to show them that we understand Russia will be with us after Putin, and we need to have some type of relationship in addition to some type of just settlement that the Ukrainians accept in Ukraine. And for having that relationship, your work has been very, very helpful also for the situation that we're in. Thank you so much, Stephen Kotkin, for taking your time. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Greetings to all of our friends in Scandinavia. It's one of the most successful places in the world. And I enjoy visiting and I'm sorry we had to do this on Zoom. I'm happy that we were able to do this, but next time in person. You're always invited to this newspaper. Thank you so much. Det var så min samtale med Stephen Kotkin, og igen den bog, som vi talte om, den hedder Armageddon Averted, The Soviet Collapse, 1970-2000. Og jeg kan stærkt anbefale at læse den. I næste uge, der skal vi, som vi altid skal, et helt andet sted hen. Der skal vi tale med den italienske filosof, Donatella Di Cesare, som tidligere har skrevet om Heidegger og nazismen, men som også har skrevet en bog om coronanedlukningen i Italien, om demokrati og om kapitalisme i det 21. århundrede. Det håber jeg, I vil lytte med til. Den her udsendelse var, som alle vores tidligere langsomme samtaler, klippet og produceret af vores gode venner og hjælper, Anne Pilegaard Petersen. Tusind tak til hende. Tusind tak til jer, fordi I var med endnu en gang. Vi høres ved næste uge.